Biden is sending troops to the border. The lead starts right now. A border surge is expected as a key immigration policy is set to expire. And now the Biden administration is deploying even more American troops to the U.S.-Mexico border. CNN is on the ground there as key border towns declare states of emergency. Plus, are we headed for default? Warnings of a recession and major job losses if Congress and the White House cannot strike a debt deal soon. We're going to lay out for you how your money, how your job might be impacted. And he's known as the godfather of AI. I will speak with a man who left his job at Google just so he could speak freely about what he calls the dangers of artificial intelligence. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we start today with not one, but two, two looming crises, potentially just days away, which could have serious consequences for the United States. The first crisis has to do with your wallet and an ongoing fight between Republicans and Democrats over the national debt. If they cannot make a deal, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is warning the U.S. government could run out of money to pay its bills. Bills for past spending, not future spending. And the U.S. government could run out of that money in less than a month. Economists are warning that that default would lead to a likely recession, massive job losses, plummeting retirement accounts, and risks to Social Security and Medicare. Then there is, of course, the second looming crisis, and that's at the southern border, where the Biden administration is now planning to send an additional 1,500 active-duty troops to help border officials prepare for a massive surge of migrants next week. Next week is when the strict border policy known as Title 42 expires. Title 42 allowed the U.S. government under Trump and then under Biden to quickly expel some migrants using COVID as an excuse. But it's about to expire. And now tens of thousands of people are currently camping out and waiting it out in northern Mexico, waiting to cross the border. On the U.S. side of the border, many cities and towns already overwhelmed with migrants and humanitarian needs, leading those cities and towns to declare states of emergency, begging for more resources now and ahead of next week's deadline. Now, if you're out there thinking, hey, I feel like I follow the news and we've known that these deadlines were coming for months, if not years, you're right. And if you're thinking, you know, our elected representatives, they could have made some deals to fix this at any time, you're also right. Our team of reporters is covering every angle of these stories, starting with CNN's Rosa Flores in El Paso, Texas. Rosa, walk us through what you're seeing there as more migrants arrive. You know, Jake, what we're seeing is just more migrants spilling over to more downtown El Paso. Having a little problem there with Rosa's uh, feed. We will come, uh, come. Is she back? That there are migrants. Rosa, start again. We, we missed you Am at the I top. Back? Yeah, you're back. Yeah, start at the top. Go ahead. Oh, okay. No problem. So what we're seeing is the number of migrants increasing in downtown El Paso, spilling over to more city streets. I'm around the corner from a shelter, a church shelter, and you can see that now the migrants that are camping out here have crossed over the street and are, um, we're just seeing more. What you were saying, uh, we've known about this. Uh, the Biden administration has been preparing for this. So why are we seeing so many migrants right now when Title 42 is still in effect? Because you can see that all of these streets are lined with migrants. Well, let me take you through this. 
Title 42 allows immigration agents to swiftly return certain migrants back to Mexico. So why are we seeing all these migrants? There are tens of thousands cities waiting for the lifting of Title 42. A lot of them have grown impatient. They're very frustrated. A lot of them have sold everything that they own to come to the United States, and now they are just losing patience. And Jake, some of them are crossing legally. They're turning themselves into authorities at ports of entry. Others are deciding to cross illegally. And what you're seeing here is a mix of both those who turned them themselves turned themselves into Border Patrol and others who just lost their patience and crossed the border illegally. Jake. All right, Rosa Flores at the border in El Paso, Texas. Thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's Phil Manningly at the White House and CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Phil, so the Biden administration sending another 1,500 active duty troops to the southern border ahead of this expected surge. Uh, they must be concerned uh, at, in the West Wing that they're not prepared for what might happen next week. Yeah, Jake, it's worth noting, and you mentioned this up top, for months, administration officials have been racing to prepare for this moment, a moment that they knew was going to come eventually, that they've known for several months was going to come on May 11th, trying to set up a system to deal with a surge that they knew was going to be coming, shifting resources, trying to surge uh, operational capabilities, trying to address root causes, kind of a multi-pronged effort, uh, including some rule changes that many Democrats opposed trying to set up for what's coming and yet still when you talk to administration officials they will candidly acknowledge that they will likely to some degree be overwhelmed by what they expect in the weeks ahead now they believe that to some degree over the course of time particularly as long-standing uh, pre-title 42 protocols start to kick into gear they will be able to maintain control of things but you can just tell by the resources and it's far larger and widespread more widespread than just the u.s troops that will be joining the national guard troops that are already down there uh, that they understand what's coming and you can see the flow by the thousands that have started to increase and uptick and it'll be something that will not just be a policy problem over the course of the coming weeks and months but also very acutely a political one jake manu today house republicans unveiled what they're calling a they're calling a border security package tell us some of what's in there yeah, this has been part of an internal process for the past several months. Uh, Republicans have not been on the same page in the House on this issue. Now they believe they are. It includes a whole wide range of issues, including to restart construction of the border wall at the southern border with Mexico, in addition to new limits on asylum seekers, includes enhanced requirements for the so-called E-Verify program for employers, an end to the so-called catch-and-release program. Also, they would increase funding to try to bolster border patrol agents at the U.S.-Mexico border. Kevin McCarthy wants to put this on the House floor the week of May 11th, coinciding with the end of Title 42. It is expected that it will pass the House. The question will be, will it pass the United States Senate? That is highly, highly unlikely. Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, has no plans to bring it up in the Democratic-led Senate. But the Republicans believe that it will be part of what they campaigned on, one of the issues they believe they'll deliver to, on to voters, this issue of pushing for more security at the border now that they believe they have their conference on the same page, Jake. Well, the House sure passes a lot of legislation that can't get through the Senate. Interesting. Uh, Manu, I want to talk about the other impending crisis. That's the national debt. House Republicans did the same thing. They passed something that they knew had no chance of passing in the Senate. But now that President Biden and Speaker McCarthy have actually agreed to sit down along with the other congressional leaders, does that suggest in any way that, that they're closer in any way, in any measurable way to a deal? 
it does not seem like that at the moment. In fact, the two sides are still completely opposite when it comes to this issue. The Democrats, the leaders on down to the rank and file are saying that the debt ceiling needs to be raised first before they would even consider any spending cuts. Republicans say there must be significant spending cuts in tied to the debt ceiling increase. And that's what they're going to have to discuss next week when they sit down at the White House. And significantly today, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, someone who had in the past has helped resolve some of these standoffs, come up with novel ways to do just that, indicated he has no plans in intervening here and that he is letting Kevin McCarthy take the lead. Are you ruling out getting involved at all if there's no... Well, what I'm saying is the conditions for reaching an agreement change depending upon the nature of the bodies. Uh, many people point back to 10 years ago when President Biden and I were involved in reaching an agreement. That was a different set of players than we have today. It should be clear to the administration that the Senate is not a relevant player this time. They have got to have a measure that can pass the House. How does it pass the House? It has to have the support of the Speaker, and I'm behind the Speaker. And the Speaker has said repeatedly that he will not simply raise the national debt limit without any conditions, a so-called clean increase, something that the White House has pushed. And even on the Senate side, Jake, there are not 60 votes to advance a clean debt ceiling increase because Republican support simply is not there. So even though they're meeting, Jake, a lot of questions about how to resolve what could be a significant crisis if the debt ceiling is not raised in a matter of weeks. Phil, uh, this afternoon, the White House Press Secretary, uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, gave a preview of President Biden's approach heading into this meeting with top congressional leaders. What did you have to say? Yeah, Jake, the president more than willing to have a discussion on longer term spending and budget proposals. Perhaps there's some type of off ramp that White House officials will explore there. But when it comes to their position on the debt limit, there is no divergence off where they and where Democratic leaders on Capitol Hill have been over the course of months. And I think that underscores a reality here. Yes, the meeting is movement in and of itself primarily because the bar was so low, there hadn't been anything but a stare down for several months. But the positions remain completely unchanged, which raises the question of how does this actually end? What are the actual off-ramps here right now? White House officials making clear they don't believe they're the ones who can or should break. That should be Republicans who, as Manu has reported, aren't saying they're going to either. All right, Phil Manningly and Manu Raju uh, on opposite ends of Capitol Hill, Pennsylvania Avenue. Thanks so much. A debt default will almost certainly have serious consequences for you, and for your family, and for the U.S. economy, from possible layoffs to higher borrowing costs, even a likely recession. CNN's Tom Foreman now takes a closer look at how bad things could get if lawmakers cannot figure out a way to avoid a default and do their jobs. Air travel, transportation, customs, mail delivery, and many more services closely linked to federal funding might face severe interruptions. Social security checks could be cut off, thousands of federal workers furloughed, and as all that money drained away from consumer spending, it might send the U.S. and global economies into a tailspin and perhaps even a major depression. We know that it would be a catastrophe for our country to uh, default. Yet Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, in a letter to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, warns it could all happen, potentially as early as June 1st, and it would cause severe hardship to American families. 
financial analysts broadly agree the stock market would plummet, tanking 401ks and other investment savings for millions of families. Unemployment would leap up, state programs which rely on federal backing could also be sent reeling, and the banking system already rattled by recent problems. It's not in a position of strength that you can throw on another issue like the debt ceiling and say, well, the markets will just, you know, this will be water off a duck's back. No, it won't. This could be something that could metastasize into a bigger problem when you already start with markets that are in the position that they're in right now. It's all a guessing game since the federal government has never defaulted before. But in 2011, the Obama administration and congressional Republicans fought to the wire over spending and debt with then-Vice President Joe Biden in the negotiating chair. We have to get this out of the way to get to the issue of growing economy. And based on just coming that close to default. The stock market fell 17% in a seven-week span. The credit rating of the U.S. got downgraded, and we had a noticeable tightening of credit. All of these dire warnings are hooked to the idea of just a few days of default. If it goes on longer, all of these experts say it will get much, much worse, and it will not matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, progressive or conservative, it could be harder for you to earn more money, borrow more money, or even keep the money you have. Jake? Yep. I wonder what it would be like if we just stopped doing our jobs the way the politicians just decide not to do their jobs. All right, Tom, sorry to do the point of pressure. Coming up, three stabbings near a college campus, two victims killed. What's holding police back from calling this a serial attack? Also, the stern warning to Supreme Court justices about their conduct on bench and their activities outside of court, plus the first case of its kind. Abortion care refused for a pregnant woman's medical emergency. Did two hospitals violate federal law? Our national lead now, three stabbings, zero arrests, and no suspect identified after a woman was attacked last night near the University of California, Davis. This is the third stabbing near that campus in five days. The woman is currently in critical condition. The first two victims were killed. CNN's Nick Watt reports that the community is on edge as police work to determine whether the stabbings are connected. Students ordered to shelter in place overnight as police tried and failed to find the suspect who stabbed a woman shortly before midnight on a city street. We're following a multitude of leads, uh, but uh, as of this point, nobody has been identified. This laid-back California college town usually sees just one homicide in an entire year. Now, two within a week, three stabbings total. It's very obvious that the the manner and the brutality of these crimes are very similar. Uh, that is concerning to us. Uh, but at this stage, uh, we can't definitively uh, link them yet. Thursday morning, David Bro was found stabbed to death in a city park, a downtown fixture known for asking passersby to share their thoughts on compassion. I started that June 3rd of 2009 and have got about 5,000 entries and talked about 10,000 people. I've become known as the compassion guy. Saturday night, a 20-year-old computer science student, Kareem Abu Najim, stabbed, murdered on this bike path through another park on his way home. He was just six weeks away from graduating. He was so proud and so happy and so thankful. He said, thanks, mom and dad, you paid all my tuition, you didn't. The family moved to California from Lebanon 
in 2018. We came here hoping for safety. The latest victim of this apparent spree, a woman stabbed through her tent late last night. She remains in critical condition. You have a very dangerous person who seems to have struck out randomly in a very violent way against three very different victims. Um, I think the people of, uh, of the city of Davis are rightly very concerned right now. The FBI is now helping in the manhunt. Local police also upping their patrols, hoping to reassure students and keep them safe. I did not expect my senior year for any of this to be happening, especially in Davis. A lot of students just don't want to go to school. And police are advising students in Davis not to go out after dark alone. The chief says operate a buddy system. Now, they don't have a name of a suspect, but they do now have a pretty good uh, description from the last two incidents. The suspect is described as average height, thin, pale complexion, and the most identifying feature, long, dark, curly hair. Now, the FBI is also involved. Local police hope that criminal profilers will come in to try and determine if the suspect they're looking here bears any of the hallmarks of a serial killer. Jake. Terrifying. Nick Watt, uh, thank you so much. There's a number of horrifying crime stories out there. Let's go to Oklahoma now, where the search for two missing teenage girls appears to have ended even more tragically than anyone thought possible. Seven bodies have been now found on the property of a registered sex offender. Two of them are believed to be the missing teenagers, 14-year-old Ivy Webster and 16-year-old Brittany Brewer. Horrible. The 39-year-old sex offender, Jesse McFadden, is also among the dead. We do not yet know the identities of the other four bodies. Authorities made this discovery when McFadden failed to show up for his trial on charges of solicitation of a minor. CNN's John Miller joins us now to talk about these two stories and uh, the one in Texas also. John, so in Oklahoma, the medical examiner uh, will provide a final confirmation of the identities of these two teenage girls. So awful. What do you make of the fact that four other bodies were found? Well, it appears Jesse McFadden um, went and arranged uh, his weekend around gathering these people uh, with an apparent plan to kill his family um, and, and, his, and his own stepchildren, as well as one of, their, one of his children's best friends, who was a regular kind of sleepover guest. She would sleep over at her house or it would go the other way. And in this case, Ivy Webster, uh, who they believe is one of these bodies, uh, was sleeping over at McFadden's stepdaughter's house. And when McFadden said, I'm taking the kids to the ranch um, a couple of towns away where we're going to do some work, um, and they didn't turn up, that's how they were reported missing. That's how they got the search warrant. And that's how they went into the house and found everybody. The key here is he was due in court for another charge of soliciting a minor uh, using the computer he was um, just out of jail after serving 17 years for similar things and probably felt he was going back and made the decision, I'm going to take everybody with me and go and not go back to jail. So grim. Um, let's discuss those three recent stabbings uh, near the UC Davis campus in California. Police there say that the suspect description lines up in all three cases, all in the same area, but authorities are not yet willing to say that they're all definitively uh, connected. At what point do you say we have a serial stabber here? 
Well, I think you can say that right now. I think authorities are being cautious to the extent that they don't have uh, blood and DNA matches to say it's the same offender and they're being cautious. But they're certainly acting as if they have a serial offender in terms of their deployment and the investigation. In Texas, officials apparently, unbelievably, remain no closer to finding this man accused of fatally shooting five people, including a mother and her nine-year-old son, uh, on Friday. A source tells CNN that U.S. Border Patrol is now on the lookout in case he tries to escape back to Mexico. He's a Mexican national. He'd been deported four times previously after entering the U.S. illegally. Authorities say they're devoting substantial resources to tracking him down. Why do you think this manhunt is so complex? Well, they say everything is bigger in Texas, and it starts with Texas. So you've got um, a small rural area where he runs into the woods. There they find clothing and a cell phone. Um, so the concentration of the search is in the woods. There's two sightings in Montgomery County, which is pretty far away, um, but a place where he may have fled to if he has contacts and support. And then there's the fact that a guy who's been deported four times to Mexico and has found his way back is pretty familiar with the border, and that is six hours in the opposite direction from where he started if you drive straight from there to Laredo. So they have an awful lot of ground to cover, and they don't have solid tips from people in that town saying he was seen here or there. What they are doing is using a lot of resources, FBI, Customs and Border, as well as the U.S. Marshals and the FBI who are stationed in Mexico, watching both ends of this while they look in Texas. John, briefly, if you could, are, are individuals like this usually found through tips or, or, or by law enforcement searches? This is a guy without resources who escaped without a plan after a crime without a plan, an act of passion. He's going to be caught just because he can run, but he cannot hide. John Miller, thanks so much. Always appreciate it. Coming up next, the push today to create, at the very least, a, a code of conduct for the U.S. Supreme Court and the chances that those calls may fall upon deaf ears. In our politics lead, a blunt message to the U.S. Supreme Court from a prominent and well-respected conservative former federal judge, J. Michael Ludick, who warned the justices in a letter, quote, to whatever extent the court does not subject itself to the highest possible professional and ethical standards, it also depreciates its power to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, which is the high charge that the American people have bestowed upon the Supreme Court, unquote. That letter submitted as part of a Senate hearing today on the Supreme Court ethics, or lack thereof, and coming amid a cascade of reports on possible ethical violations from some of the justices, and those are just the ones we know about. Joining us now, Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. He's a Judiciary Subcommittee Chairman and co-led today's hearing. Uh, Senator Whitehouse, always good to see you. So I have to say, I know there's a lot of criticism of Justice Thomas, some criticism of Justice uh, Roberts, but all nine justices, all nine of them seem to be on the same page that they do not need increased oversight, including the three liberal justices. If you can't even get them to accuse on uh, them to align with you on the issue, on the idea of oversight. What's the next step? Well, first of all, let's not be so sure about that, uh, because uh, Justice Kagan has said publicly that the court has tried to put a ethics code for itself together in the past, and it hasn't succeeded yet. So I think it's a bit much to say that none of the nine justices want it. They just haven't sorted it out yet. The second point is that. I think the other judges are really getting quite fed up with the Supreme Court justices' behavior. 
because they do have to live under ethics codes and ethics processes that they know would not permit the kind of behavior that the Supreme Court is both engaged in and trying to justify. So there's also going to be pressure from within the rest of the federal judiciary to clean up this mess. And if push comes to shove, we've got legislation. I was reading an article um, about Abe Fortas being uh, ousted from the court, resigning from the court when he was under fire for his ethics, uh, his questionable uh, behavior ethically. Uh, and they talked about um, the justice, uh, Justice Earl Warren wanting an ethics, uh, some ethics requirements. That was in 1969. That was the year I was born. Senator Lindsey Graham uh, slammed this renewed focus from Democrats on Supreme Court ethics today. He called it an attempt to attack the court's legitimacy as the court becomes more conservative. Uh, we've seen that argument a lot from uh, Senate Republicans, including Senator Mike Lee. How do you respond to that? Well, I'll go with uh, Senator Graham's uh, earlier statements about how important it is for the court to make financial disclosures just the way senators and congressmen do, just the way senior executive officials do, frankly, better, um, and just the way all the other federal judges do. I think that there's room for bipartisan improvement here. It really is not appropriate for the highest court in the land to be the one with the lowest uh, ethics standards and the worst ethics process. I want to ask you uh, about your colleague on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator um, Dianne Feinstein from California. She's had an extended absence from the Senate as she recovers from uh, shingles. This comes after years of questions about her faculties. Um, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat from New York, uh, called for Feinstein to retire in a blue sky uh, social media post or skeet. She wrote, quote, her refusal to either retire or show up is causing great harm to the judiciary. Precisely where reproduction rights and are getting stripped. That failure means now in this precious window, Democrats can only pass Republican-approved nominees, unquote. How do you respond? I mean, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, what she's saying there is, I mean, empirically factual. You, you're not able to do what you would be doing if you had a, a, the Democrat on the committee that you need. The best response is for Senator Feinstein to get better and come back. Uh, because whether she's out of the committee because she has stepped down from the committee temporarily or whether she's out of the committee because she's left the committee or whether she's off the committee because she's left the Senate, the same process has to be gone through to replace her on the committee. So the Republican blockade that is presently uh, preventing us from filling her seat on a temporary basis could just as easily uh, prevent us from filling her seat in the Judiciary Committee on a permanent basis if she were to resign. The only clear solution is for her to come back, and that's what we're very hopeful she will do. How do you respond to a Democrat watching this who might say, you sound more concerned about the, the feelings and the hurt feelings of a senator than about all of the important issues and rights uh, of 350 million Americans? Well, first of all, I do care about Diane's feelings. I've uh, served with her in the Senate for a long time and admire her immensely. Uh, but to the other point, remember, whether she's away for illness, whether she's away because of resignation from the committee, whether she's away because of resignation from the Senate, the predicament that Senate Democrats have is the same. It requires unanimous consent or a vote beyond 60 in order to put a new senator on that committee and fill her seat. So the problem doesn't go away whether she resigns or not. 
The problem only goes away when she comes back and sits in that seat and votes again. I want to ask you uh, about the the budget standoff, uh, obviously, uh, because um, you're chairman of the budget committee uh, and you're set to hold a hearing this Thursday on the debt limit passed by House, the debt limit bill passed by House Republicans. Um, Do Senate Democrats have the votes to pass their own bill? Well, we haven't taken that up yet. I suspect that we do. But the first thing that we need to do is to make sure that it's clear where uh, the basically MAGA proposal that Speaker McCarthy has launched will get us. It's a terrible choice that he's trying to force on the American people. Default is a million lost jobs. His bill is 780,000 lost jobs. Default is a recession. His bill is a 160-plus billion-dollar hit to the U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. We don't need to go either way. There's a sensible pathway if they... The real extremists over there will come back and use the regular process of government that the founding fathers set up under the Constitution to have this debate in the light of day. Right. But they're not wrong that $32 trillion of debt is is unsustainable. Um, Would you be willing? Well, let me put it this way. Would you rather the U.S. default on its debt than accept a bill that includes some spending cuts? The U.S. cannot default on its debt. The damage will be severe and lasting. And a lot of Americans will suffer probably for decades. All right. This Dem- is a very serious thing. Democratic and Senator. The, uh, threaten it is inappropriate. Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Appreciate it as always. My next guest is considered a pioneer in the new world of artificial intelligence. Why he quit his job at Google to be here today with a warning about the technology. Big story in our tech lead, a dire warning from the so-called godfather of AI. After a decade on Google's team for artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton says he resigned so he could speak more freely about the technology, saying it's quickly becoming smarter than humans. Joining us now to discuss Jeffrey Hinton. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us. So you left your job with Google in part because you say you want to focus solely on your concerns about AI. You've spoken out saying that AI could manipulate or possibly figure out a way to kill Humans? How, how could it kill humans? Well, eventually, if it gets to be much smarter than us, it'll be very good at manipulation because it will have learned that from us. And there are very few examples of a more intelligent thing being controlled by a less intelligent thing. And it knows how to program, so it'll figure out ways of getting around um, restrictions we put on it. It'll figure out ways of manipulating people to do what it wants. So what do we do? Do we just need to pull the plug on it right now? Do we need to put in far more restrictions and, and, and uh, backstops on this? What, how do we solve this problem? It's not clear to me that we can solve this problem. Um, I believe we should put a big effort into thinking about ways to solve the problem. I don't have a solution at present. I just want people to be aware that this is a really serious problem and we need to be thinking about it very hard. I don't think we can stop the progress. I didn't sign the petition saying we should stop working on AI because if people in America stopped, people in China wouldn't. It's very hard to verify whether people are doing it. There have been some whistleblowers who have been warning about the dangers of AI over the past few years. One of them, um, Timney Gebru, was forced out of Google for voicing his concerns. Uh, Looking back on it, do you wish that you had stood behind these whistleblowers more? Um, Tim, it's actually a woman. 
Um, oh, sorry. So they were rather different concerns from mine. Um, I think it's easier to voice concerns if you leave the company first. And their concerns aren't as existentially serious as the idea of these things getting more intelligent than us and taking over. Steve Wozniak, uh, one of the co-founders of Apple, is also speaking out about the dangers he fears uh, will come from AI. Take a listen. Now, AI is another more powerful tool, and it's going to be used by those people, um, you know, for basically uh, really evil purposes. And I hate to see technology being used that way. It shouldn't be. And some, probably some types of regulation are, are needed. It sounds like you agree. Um, what, 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 I agree with that. Yes. Yeah. What, what should that regulation look like? I'm not an expert on how to do regulation. I'm just a scientist who suddenly realize that these things are getting smarter than us. Um, and I want to sort of blow the whistle and say, we should worry seriously about how we stop these things getting control over us. Um, and it's going to be very hard. And I don't have the solutions. I wish I did. Does there need to be a, a meeting of, of all of the tech groups and governments working on this, uh, Google, China, whatever, and some sort of set of rules of the road? I mean, how do we even protect against bad actors or, or rogue nations harnessing AI? So for some things, it's very hard, like them using AI for manipulating electorates or for fighting wars with robot soldiers. But for the existential threat of AI taking over, we're all in the same boat. It's bad for all of us. And so we might be able to get China and the US to agree on things like that. It's like nuclear weapons. If there's a nuclear war, we all lose. And it's the same if these things take over. So since we're all in the same boat, we should be able to get agreement between China and the U.S. on things like that. Do you think that tech companies will be the solution or are they so invested in this financially? And also, let's be frank, in terms of power, uh, that they're not going to be part of the solution here. I think the tech companies are the people most likely to be able to see how to keep this stuff under control. Jeffrey Hinton, thank you so much. Come back. We have more questions for you, and we appreciate your candor. Thank you. Coming up next, the federal investigation now launched as abortion laws create a chilling effect on hospital care across the United States. Stay with us. In our health lead for the very first time since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the federal government is now investigating two hospitals in the U.S. for not offering abortion care to a woman who had a pregnancy emergency. Melissa Farmer shared her experience in a political ad for a Democratic Senate candidate last year. At 17 weeks of pregnancy, she suffered a premature rupture of membranes and her water broke. She went to a hospital in Joplin, Missouri, and then to another in Kansas City, Kansas. And according to the Department of Health and Human Services, Doctors at both hospitals told Farmer that her condition could deteriorate, but an abortion would violate hospital policies. Abortions are banned in Missouri and Kansas, with rare exceptions. And that's just one case. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen talked with a woman in Florida who says abortion laws in her state have had devastating ramifications on her family. Last fall, Deborah and Lee Dorbert were excited to be giving their son, Caden, a sibling. But at an ultrasound, when Deborah was 24 weeks pregnant, the doctors had terrible news. The baby has no kidneys and you have little to no amniotic fluid. The doctors said the baby was sure to be stillborn or die quickly after birth. 
and Deborah was at an increased risk of a potentially deadly pregnancy complication. I broke down crying in the room. It's a rare condition called Potter's syndrome. In many states, doctors offer to terminate such doomed pregnancies, and that's what the Dorberts wanted to do. But their doctors said it wasn't possible because of a Florida law passed last year that bans nearly all abortions after 15 weeks. The law has an exception in cases of a fatal fetal abnormality that is incompatible with life outside the womb. Dr. Stephanie Ross, a high-risk pregnancy doctor in Florida, says she understands why Deborah's doctor wouldn't terminate the pregnancy. The moment the law came out, I think everyone was scrambling to try to figure out what exactly was that language intended to convey. Doctors found in violation of the law can face heavy fines and even prison terms. The Dorberts had two choices, leave Florida for a termination elsewhere or take the pregnancy to full term. Even though it's legal to leave Florida to get an abortion, the Dorberts said they were scared they'd get arrested. So Deborah stayed pregnant. I continue to feel this baby move and knowing that I'm going to give birth and watch my child pass. Her mental health suffered. I really started having issues with depression and anxiety and just not wanting to get up out of bed. As Caden grew more and more attached to his little sibling. He continued to see my belly grow and he continued to fill my belly to feel the baby moved. And he kept getting excited that he was going to have a sibling. The baby, a boy they named Milo, was born in March. And as the doctors predicted, his life was short. As Deborah held Milo in her arms, he gasped for breath and died in about an hour and a half. Deborah doesn't want to get pregnant again. I couldn't go through another trauma like this with pregnancy. When told about the Dorbert story, Florida Representative Jenna Persons Malika, a sponsor of the Florida abortion law, sent CNN this statement. We are providing mothers with the resources they need to raise healthy children, empowering doctors to help their patients make informed decisions, and shifting the conversation to valuing life. But Deborah says Florida law forever damaged her family because she spent 13 weeks carrying a baby who was sure to die. Elizabeth Cohen, CNN, reporting. And our thanks to Elizabeth Cohen for that reporting. Coming up, Trevor Reed and his family will be here. Their message to the Biden administration one year after the Marine veteran was released from detention in Russia. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour on strike, thousands of writers walking off the job after contract negotiations fail. What this might mean for your favorite TV shows and movies and the future of entertainment. Plus, Protecting kids on social media. There's a new bipartisan push in the U.S. Senate. We're going to talk to Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn and Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal about what their bill does and does not do. Does it block access to potentially life-saving resources? And leading this hour, the Kremlin pushing back on newly declassified U.S. intelligence that shows 20,000 Russian soldiers have been killed in Ukraine since December alone. A large portion of those are likely private Wagner mercenary fighters killed around the area of Bakhmut, where you see these apocalyptic scenes we're showing you right now. Despite the total destruction, Ukraine says Russia has not completely captured the eastern city, now largely a a symbolic goal rather than a strategic one. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is in the southern city of Zaporizhia, Ukraine, for us right now. And Nick, British intelligence, you say, shows Russia is afraid Ukraine could achieve a, quote, major breakthrough. They're building up an extensive system of trenches in the south. Tell us what you're seeing. 
Yeah, there has been an extraordinary network, Doug. Possibly, according to this British intelligence report, the largest we've seen since World War II uh, across the southern area of Zaporizhia. We've driven along the Ukrainian side of it for quite a past number of weeks here. Often, these are deep trenches followed by a significant sand bank backed up with razor wire and then these dragon's teeth, sort of pyramid-shaped pieces of concrete that form a complex series of defences, not insurmountable with modern weaponry and explosives and targeted missiles at all, but certainly a challenge that will be very much in the mind of Ukrainian forces as they probably in the days ahead, if not already in the days behind, begin the counter-offensive in these areas. We simply don't know the full details of their plan, to be honest, and whether it's potentially playing into it. There's been an extraordinary lack of videos from Ukrainian military over the past weeks. They normally post from the front, but those we have seen have talked about the mud slowing down their capacity to move around the battlefield. Odd that, frankly, that would be advertised. Uh, but we've also heard from the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Kingdom that, in fact, this bad weather is playing a part. But sunny one day, rainy the next. All this plays into the broader issue here, Jake, and we are, of course, also hearing uh, from around the city of Bakhmut, so deeply symbolic uh, that Russian forces there are expressing concerns about a lack of artillery shells and the possibility that might mean they have to start pulling back, Jake. Nick, we're also hearing about increased attacks and, and sabotage in occupied areas in the south. Tell us about that. Yeah, certainly building up this broader anticipation of the counteroffensive are a number of attacks, what you might refer to as in occupied areas behind enemy lines, particularly in Melitopol, a key target city for Ukraine to liberate in the weeks ahead. Uh, a few days ago, we heard of a police official there that was working for the Russian occupying forces. He was killed, according to sources there. And in the last hours or so, we've heard of another attempt to uh, target an official working uh, for the occupying Russian forces there as well. On top of that, too, now a number of explosions in Bryansk targeting rail uh, facilities in that area. One may have been an improvised explosive device, suggestions of another potential explosion just today. So increasingly, as we head into what many believe is now the beginning of Ukraine's counteroffensive, something they've been absolutely clear they will not announce, we are seeing more sabotage of um, targets inside occupied areas. Jake. All right. Nick Payton Walsh in uh, Zaporizhia, Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Today, Some rare praise from the White House for Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy after McCarthy pushed back on a Russian reporter who asked him about, quote, not supporting unlimited aid to Ukraine during McCarthy's trip to Israel. Take a listen. I vote for aid for Ukraine. I support aid for Ukraine. I do not support what your country has done you to, to Ukraine. I do not support your killing of the children either. And I think for one standpoint, you should pull out. And I don't think it's right. This after McCarthy repeatedly said there would be, quote, no blank check to Ukraine from his Republican-majority House of Representatives. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said she was glad to hear McCarthy swat down that Russian propaganda. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken admitted that U.S. dialogue with Russia is, quote, irregular when it comes to Americans detained there as families and advocacy groups continue to push the Biden administration for more action. The Bring Our Families Home campaign will hold a vigil in Washington, D.C. this evening to implore President Biden and his administration to do more to bring wrongfully detained Americans held hostage all over the world home. Ahead of the event, a billboard truck circled the White House and State Department displaying messages such as POTUS, that's President of the United States, stop ignoring us. One of the attendees at tonight's vigil, U.S. Marine veteran detained in Russia for nearly three years, Trevor Reed. Trevor and his parents, Joey and Paula Reed, joins us now, and I think our 
viewers know you guys by now, although we're all keeping up with your various looks. First, you got huge, and now you got the beard. <laughs> um, Trevor, before we get to tonight's vigil, um, for, for over a year, uh, I'm sorry, just over a year ago, you were released from the Russian prison. I want to play a part of our, our conversation last May. When they told me that I was leaving, I thought that Paul, you know, was leaving with me. And uh, when I found out that they left him here, that was tough. You didn't want to go without him? You didn't have a choice, Trevor. Sorry. You didn't have a choice. There's nothing you could do. Yeah, I realize that, but uh, the fact is that the United States should have got him out, and we have to get him out at, at any cost. First of all, I have to say, the fact that you got out and that you and your family are as involved still on trying to get other people out is just remarkable and such a testament to your, the character of your family. But here we are, a year later, Paul Whelan's still there, uh, now another American, uh, Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Grishkovich is there. If you could speak right now directly to them, what would you say to those two men? I would tell them that they have to hold on and that, you know, we're fighting here and we're not going to stop until they come home and to not give up and to keep making noise. How are you doing? It's been a year. You've been out of prison. How, how's everything? I'm doing really well. Yeah. Yeah, it takes uh, a couple of months to kind of adjust. Um, but then after that, you just kind of go back to, to doing what you were before and, and fitting back into things. So That's good. Well, you look great, and your parents look 10 years younger than last time <laughs> I saw them. Oh, that's the makeup. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Um, so Joey and Paula, uh, the Bring Our Families Home campaign's vigil and rally's goal uh, is to get President Biden to meet with the detained American families, and not just the ones that are, quote-unquote, famous, not just the ones that are notable um, I, I want to play a part of, of lead U.S. hostage envoy Roger Carstens um, on Christiana Amanpour's show when asked why Biden wouldn't meet with families of less famous detained Americans. Take a look. We've brought back 27 Americans in 27 months. Of that number, only two of those families met with the president. So there were 25 Americans that were brought home in the last uh, over two years whose families never met with the president of the United States. The real measure of success is whether someone comes home, steps on a tarmac on U.S. soil, and falls into the loving arms of their family. That's the metric that we're shooting for. And I know you, you love Roger Carstens, and he's, a, he's an American hero. So did, did this job for Trump, doing it with Biden. All praise to him. At the time, we should note, your family was the only family of, of a detainee held in Russia to have met with President Biden. Do you think that actually made a difference? There's no doubt. There's abs- we said for a year and a half before that meeting, we just need to get through the bureaucracy to the man who makes the decisions. And once he hears about our son personally and what he's going through, that he will make it happen. And 27 days later, Trevor was a free man. And you, you heard President Biden the other night saying something, uh, talking about this issue. Right. And the thing was, like you said, uh, more famous people or whatever. We weren't famous. We're just regular people. But I think it was because we just never let up. And we just kept going and going and going. And then after that happened, and because the president is a compassionate person, he could see the pain in our family's eyes from not having Trevor with us, and he decided to do something about it. 
So you think it made a difference? You think it, made, it, it was the difference between President Biden saying, well, I don't know about that swap, and President Biden saying, just do this for the reads? Absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was a combination of things, but absolutely, that, there is that uh, personal, personal issue you know, with the president wanting, wanting to do the right thing. And uh, we, we also were here to, to implore the president to meet you know, with the families, uh, especially the ones that are here in town. I mean, he can meet with the group, and it would be, it would be even though it would not be individual, but at least even if they just had a minute or two with the president, to, so he could put a face with the, the name. Yeah. And uh, it would be a great thing for the president. I know he'd love to do it, and it, you know, it would help him politically, if nothing else. But Trevor, you told me last year that you thought before you traveled to Russia, there was no way that Russia would detain another American like they had Paul Whelan. Um, and uh, that would make Russia, you know, now they've done it again with Evan Gershkovich. You said it would make Russia like North Korea, in your words. Is, is no American safe in Russia, do you think? No. Uh, I mean, when I said that, things, you know, with Russia hadn't really escalated to the point that they're at now. But uh, I think that it's, you know, extremely clear that that right now uh, any American that travels to Russia is in grave danger of, of being, you know, taken hostage by, by Russia, being wrongfully detained. Um, and I think that that amount of desperation that the Russians have right now is going to continue to mount until, you know, eventually maybe even diplomats are going to be at risk of that. So, Well, we're going to continue to cover the story of all those Americans uh, held uh, and detained unfairly, unjustly abroad. And, and honestly, you three are you're one of the reasons that we all continue to do it. So thank you so much. Thank you for continuing to do it, because it means a lot to and a lot could, of families. We couldn't have done what we did without people like you, Jim. Well, so. I'm, so, I'm just glad that you get to give him <laughs> hugs and kisses. Yes, I do. <laughs> Trevor, Joey, and Paula Reed, thanks so much. Coming up, we're live on the picket lines as thousands of TV writers go on strike. What that might mean for your favorite shows and the people behind them. Stay with us. In our pop culture lead, the writer's strike is already claiming victims. New episodes of Saturday Night Live have been canceled. NBC will air old episodes in the meantime. The cra- strike is creating the ultimate cliffhanger for tons of your favorite shows, halting production, possibly delaying the start of new seasons later this year. CNN's Stephanie Elam is outside Netflix in Hollywood where picketers are lining up. Stephanie, tell us why writers are making this drastic move and what impact it could have on shows across the industry. Jake, a lot of people are sitting there thinking that this is just a Hollywood story, but it's much broader than that. And these are people who are out here today saying that they want to make a living wage for their craft, for what they do. They're saying that they want to be paid in this era of streamers. They want to make money so that they can continue to live. And many of them live in these very expensive cities of New York, as well as Los Angeles here. And so they are saying things need to be renegotiated for how they get their wages. And also, how many writers are in the writing room? I want to introduce you quickly to WGA's chief negotiator, also a writer, Ellen Stutzman. Also, not a writer. Okay, Ellen Stutzman. Tell me, how far away are you between what the studios are saying, saying that they can't afford to keep paying this way, that Wall Street's asking for contractions, and also the writers saying that they need to have their craft taken seriously and to be paid for what they're doing? How far apart are the two sides? In dollars and cents, we're hundreds of millions of dollars apart because what the studios want to do is destroy the profession of writing and turning it into a gig economy. And so writers are on strike. 
so that they can share in the value of the immensely profitable work that they create for these companies and continue writing as a, a good career that allows people to live in places like LA and New York. And just to just look at how many people are out here today, the last time you had a strike like this was 15 years ago, and that went for 100 days. Is there any idea if their sides are further apart now at this time compared to last time or no? Last time we were facing an existential threat of the Internet and the companies not wanting to cover writing and allow that jurisdiction to be Writers Guild. Now we're facing a similar existential threat about the future of writing as a profession. So the Writers Guild remains ready to negotiate, but these companies have to recognize what they've done to their workforce and come to the table and be ready to re reach a deal. Ellen Stutzman, thank you so much. But again, for the corporations, the studios behind this, they are saying that they can't continue to pay this much when there's, you know, for all of this content that is out there, that things have changed, the market has changed, and they don't want to just have to pay writers for shows when they don't uh, need them at that particular time. That is what you're seeing, the difference here. And of course, this is going to affect right away, immediately, the shows that you watch, late night talk shows, are already dark. Saturday Night Live will not be on this weekend. It's going to affect your shows, but not not immediately, because a lot of those shows may have already have some shows that are in the tank. Obviously, though, as you get further on into the summer, if this drags on further on the year, then you could see it affect some of your favorite programs, Jake. All right, Stephanie Elam, thanks so much. Senator Dianne Feinstein's office just weighed in on her return to D.C., and it's probably not going to quiet her critics. That's next. Less than 30 days. That's how long the Biden administration says the U.S. has before the country can no longer afford to pay its debts, putting the nation at risk of a catastrophic default for the first time in the history of the United States. Hoping to avoid that, CNN has learned that House Democrats have taken a key behind-the-scenes procedural step that could be used in case of fire break glass to bypass House Republican leadership to force a vote to raise the debt ceiling, a clean bill, although they would need some Republicans to go along with it. Joining us now, Republican strategist Kevin Madden, along with Democratic strategist and CNN political commentator uh, Karen uh, Finney. So j just to bring people up to speed on that, right. there's a thing called a discharge petition, right. a very nerdy thing. But what you can do is if 218 members of the House go and sign this petition, they can force any legislation onto the floor for a clean up or down vote. Right. So how many Democrats are there? 214? Ten? I know, I forget it. Right, you would need... You would need a handful of Republicans to go along. Correct. And the, the, the assumption here is that putting it on those 18 Republicans who are in Biden districts, right. districts where Biden won, and really forcing the middle to say, okay, are you willing to stand up to the right wing of your caucus? I mean, this is what the play looks like, right? And help us force a clean debt, particularly given that, you know, we've heard grumblings from some of those same moderate Republicans they don't like some of the things that the farther right folks have made McCarthy agree to. Well, this is a way to stand up to them and flex your own power. We'll see if they'll do it. So what would you say if you were like advising Congressman Mike Lawler, for example, who's a Republican in a, in a Biden district in New York? To, is this something that he should consider at the end of this process? What do you think? I think, yeah, maybe the end of the process. But I think it also ignores the fact that a clean debt ceiling bill cannot pass the House. It's, but the, it's, it's, I think it's out. Well, they would, they would, they would need all 
200 whatever Democrats and then the people, the Republicans who signed the discharge. It would be like a, a last minute measure only to avoid. Right. But they still they still want to see, I think both in the House and Senate, there's still a big majority of folks that still want to see a debt limit bill move that has that has accompanying spending cuts. Yeah. But this is and the- so that 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 I think is the problem is that it's a strategy um, that's sort of outside the, the, the realm of the possible right now when it comes to counting the votes in both the Senate and the House. But I think, again, the assumption is that we are we know that there are some of those moderate Republicans who would need to vote with Democrats mm-hmm. on this discharge petition. It's a last minute in case of fire break glass right. kind of it's thing a, right. before there's a default. Correct. Some of them are unhappy with yeah. the proposal that McCarthy put forward and the promises that he made to folks during that 15 rounds of voting when he became the Speaker of the House. I think, you know, the White House has been very clear on this, right? Number one, they are not going to negotiate. And I've talked to them recently, and they seem very resolute. They are not negotiating on the default. They'll negotiate, have conversations about a budget, but not default. And so, yeah. uh, well, I want to ask you, because one of the, uh, one of the ways that uh, the White House, the Biden people are making their argument is, is they're saying, House Republicans are voting to cut veterans' benefits in the debt ceiling bill. Now, to be clear, there's nothing specifically in the bill that cuts mm-hmm. anything. Uh, it just it brings it, it talks about an overall budget cap. Um, but the the VA has gone out there and said that this would cut veteran fund, veterans' funding by 22 percent. Um, so here is what uh, Biden said. Biden uh, on Twitter wrote, "I hear House Republicans out on TV saying they would never vote to cut veterans' benefits. In case there's any confusion, I made a little chart that could help them out." Now, if you zoom in on the chart, um, at the top it says, did you vote for a bill that cuts domestic spending by 22%? Yes, no. If it's no, you voted to protect veterans' benefits. But yes is what Republicans did. Then it says, does the bill say this does not apply to veterans' benefits? Yes, no. If it's no, you voted to cut veterans' benefits. Now, I get that that's not technically accurate, but also aren't Republicans trying to have their cake and eat it too by saying we want to cut domestic spending by 22%? But no, we don't mean that. And no, we don't yeah, mean that. And the, then, right. the answer to all of that is yes. But right. here's the thing. The White House is making a mistake here because they think they have more leverage than they really do. And the problem here, I think, for the president is that any sort of movement towards a, 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 a default is going to create chaos in the markets. Chaos in the markets is going to create big problems for the institution of Washington. And the president is the titular head of the institution of Washington. He has more at stake here. Yeah. To forget whatever your partisan inclinations are than the House Dem- than the House Republicans do. But, but how- and so as a result of that, he has less leverage, and he has to find a way to really take control of the situation, get rid of all these small little political gestures, and really find a way to start negotiating directly with this so they can avoid the bigger problem. But here's the thing I would say to that. I mean, so again, they lay down the marker. We'll talk about the, the budget, not the not default. Then they said, show us what your budget would look like. Well, McCarthy had to get that done. Then they said, well, give us specifics. And that's where we get to, if you're going to say we're going to fund at 2022 levels in 2024, and you're not going to include defense spending, this is what, that's how they got to these veteran, the VA numbers, right? This is what it means. Make them have to, I mean, it's like McCarthy wants the president to do his job for him to negotiate with this crazy McCarthy passed a bill. He won't do it, barely. But he passed a bill. He did pass a bill. And so he has more leverage. The the president has less leverage than he thinks, and McCarthy has a little bit more leverage as a result. So, Kevin, reporters got a look at talking points for Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York today. Uh, In those talking points, we saw the leader had prepared an answer should a question about Senator Feinstein coming up. Feinstein obviously has been out sick. She's been not at full capacity for several years now. 
her absence from Washington has been a real problem for Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, and it says, quote, I spoke with Senator Feinstein yesterday. We were both hopeful she can return next week. I was captured uh, in a photo. After that came out, Feinstein's office announced she's making progress, but said there's no timeline yet for her return. Look, this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, you and I are old enough. I don't know about Karen, but you and I are old <laughs> enough to remember Strom Thurmond. Right. Like, basically spent the last 10 years of his life wandering around not knowing where he was on Capitol Hill. Um, but this is actually causing problems for the Democratic agenda. It is, but I think if, you know, I, I still remember Senator Feinstein, uh, the video of her in her office when she had like a bunch of like sixth graders come in to protest them, want her, them wanting her to support the Green New Deal. And she looked at a bunch of sixth graders and basically said, I don't care. <laughs> I've been elected by the people of California to do the job that I know I'm ready to do, and that's what I'm going to do. So a lot of the criticism that you see from people on the outside, they haven't been elected by the people of California. They haven't, they're not in the Senate. And so they can weigh in as much as they want. But I think she's going to do what she thinks is right and stay in the Senate. As someone who grew up in California and remember the moment that Senator Feinstein stepped up after Harvey Milk was killed. Sure. um, She was a hero. And this is a moment where she could again be a hero and step down, take care of her health and create a pathway for someone else. And I think many of us hope that she will do that. And by the way, my mother is a voter in California, so I will... Yeah, if that helps. She probably voted, for, for, probably voted for her. By the way, it's not as if Gavin Newsom would appoint a right-wing Republican for the seat. I mean, but anyway, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Good to see both of you. Coming up, can the federal government protect kids from the dangers of social media? We're going to talk to a Republican and Democratic senator who can believe it can. Thank you. I was nine when I wanted to die. 13 when I found a solution. You're watching the For You page of a teen's TikTok account. Love will not heal me. CNN created this TikTok profile with the help of a 14-year-old and their parents before taking control of it. Over six days, we used this account to see what kinds of content the app would serve to a young person. Seems to be sort of giving you a guide for how to develop an eating disorder, how to restrict your eating. That's just one little glimpse of what CNN was shown when one of our reporters took over a 14-year-old's TikTok account. It shows just how easily and quickly dangerous content can appear on the social media of children, teenagers, younger than teenagers. Today, a bipartisan group of U.S. senators introduced a bill that would require social media platforms to try to provide more safety mechanisms for kids and their parents. The legislation is called the Kids Online Safety Act, or COSA. It would, among other things, require social media to provide minors with options to protect their information. It would give parents new controls over social media apps. It would create a duty for online platforms to prevent certain risks to minors, such as promotion of suicide or eating disorders or sexual exploitation. It would provide academic researchers with access to data for research purposes as well. The version of the bill reintroduced today has been revamped after the version introduced last year was criticized by groups such as the ACLU and other groups for potentially leading to censorship of items involving LGBTQ Healthcare resources, for example. Uh, joining me now are, are the two co-sponsors of this bill in the U.S. Senate, Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee and Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut. Uh, thanks to both of you for being here. I really appreciate it. Senator Blackburn, let me start with you. Last year, about 90 organizations uh, across the political spectrum signed a letter warning about the dangers of last year's bill, last year's COSA. They wrote COSA would require online services to prevent a set of harms to minors which is effectively an instruction to employ broad content filtering to limit minors' access to certain online content. 
At a time when books with LGBTQ themes are being banned from school libraries, COSA would cut off another vital avenue of access to information for vulnerable youth. Obviously, not talking about sexual exploitation of children, but in terms of resources for gay kids, lesbian kids, how would this new version of the bill address that criticism if it does? Yes, and thank you so much, Jake, for uh, covering the legislation. And we're so pleased to have the support of hundreds of organizations on this legislation. And we've made certain that this is focused on the process and that it is focused on how social media platforms are to perform that duty of care, have that standard, and to make certain that children are, and parents are going to have the ability to exercise what they need to prevent these algorithmic black boxes from pushing their children down certain routes that maybe the child does not want to go. But being certain there's transparency on those algorithms that, as you mentioned, that duty of care that is there, those are just primary components of this legislation. Mm -hmm. Senator Blumenthal, this new version of the bill still includes uh, the enforcement clause that reads in part, quote, in any case in which the attorney general of a state has reason to believe that an interest of the residents of that state has been or is threatened or adversely affected by the engagement of any person in a practice that violates this act, or a regulation promulgated under this act, the state may bring a civil action on behalf of the residents of the state. I have to say, uh, Senator, you might have a lot more faith in state attorneys generals than I do, uh, but this really allows state attorney generals, which generally speaking are elected officials, no offense to politicians, but elected officials, and it opens up possibly an avenue of censorship or even just sloth, just widespread, well, I don't want to deal with any of this, so I'm just going to ban any of it. Aren't you worried about that? I don't have to go into the particulars of of attorneys general that you might not like or that Senator Blackburn might not like, but I bet you could rattle off lists. As a former attorney general for 20 years in Connecticut and a former federal prosecutor, U.S. attorney there, I have perhaps more faith than you do, but I'm not relying on faith in attorneys general. We, in fact, have met that criticism by narrowing the duty of care, so that now it applies to very specific kinds of toxic content that are driven toward kids and that the big tech companies have a duty to reduce. And remember, Jake, that those organizations that formerly oppose, many of them now have dropped their opposition. We have 32 of our colleagues co-sponsoring it, more than double the number during the last session, reflecting that increased momentum that we see and the diminished opposition. There were some suggestions that enabled us to clarify this legislation and make it so that the burden is on big tech to be held accountable, but also more tools, more means for parents to disconnect those algorithms and for children to take back their online lives. So Senator Blackburn, here's an example that I think um It really gets at some of the difficulty here. Uh, How will a platform such as Instagram be able to distinguish between a video that is promoting young women uh, to develop eating disorders versus a young person 
talking about their experience with an eating disorder uh, in a way that is helpful and, and constructive. And what we know is the content moderators for these social media platforms are constantly working on this. And Jake, we, one of the things we found out as we did five hearings with the social media platforms, as we talked to dozens and dozens of parents, is that many times parents or children would report to a social media platform that there was something that was encouraging self-harm or something that was illegal activity. And the social media platform would do nothing. That is why our legislation actually requires a dedicated channel, a pathway for this to be reported and a requirement for the amount of time that the social media company has to respond so that you're able to remove some of these things. We've talked with parents who have reported some of these videos, these challenges, things that have caused death in children, and they never are responded to, or it takes weeks for the social media platform to come back, and then they say something like, well, this doesn't violate our community standard. And when we hear about the mental health crisis that is taking place in this country, the increase in suicide, one in three teenage girls having suicidal thoughts. When you read the CDC report, what you know is the actions that social media have been taking are not working. That is why we have to have this transparency, these accountabilities that are required of these platforms. Senator Blumenthal, there's a competing uh, bill, uh, as you know, that would ban kids under 13 from being able to join social media platforms. Um, You've spoken out against it. You said it would create a national database with personal information on kids. Is there a better way, do you think, to verify kids' ages using these apps uh, and then maybe even have some sort of rating system uh, in terms of what a 12-year-old is able to look at is very different than, than uh, in, in, in terms of like a coherent uh, assimilation of the information than an 18-year-old. I welcome new ideas and allies in making kids online safer. And certainly if those ideas come forward, we would incorporate them in our bill. But remember, to do age verification, there has to be data and information submitted, private confidential data, whether it's passports or driver's licenses or some other means of data, and it goes then to a national database or, more likely, as a goldmine of information to the big tech companies. They already have so much information. Kids are their product, not their customers. They sell data or monetize it in gaining more advertisers. And so we want to protect kids and also put the burden on big tech, not on parents, to be the police force here. We are in the midst of a mental health crisis. And big tech is, in effect, preying on the pain of teenagers, having this repetitive, almost addictive content driven to them by the algorithms. And the default ought to be disabling the algorithms so that teens are better protected. Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, good to have you on. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Thank you. Dozens and dozens of meetings scheduled with some powerful and influential people. What we're learning from Jeffrey Epstein's private calendars about his continued circle of power and influence even after he got in, in trouble with the law. In our national lead, private schedules kept by notorious, insidious sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein have been obtained by the Wall Street Journal, revealing a whole new list of prominent contacts. Those names include the current CIA director, William Burns, who was Deputy Secretary of State at the time, President of Bard College, Leon Botstein, former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, and more. Incredibly, all of these meetings took place after Epstein pleaded guilty to soliciting and procuring a minor for prostitution. With us now, Khadija Safdar, who co-authored this brand new uh, reporting. Khadija, congratulations on this big scoop. Why were prominent people, including the now CIA director, meeting with Epstein multiple times, some more than three dozen times within four or five years? Um, So the documents in many cases don't reveal the purpose of the meeting. So we reached out to people to find out why they were meeting with them. Most of those people told the journal that they visited for reasons related to his wealth and his connections. Um, Several said they thought that he had served his time and that he had rehabilitated himself. Um, I think Mr. Botstein said that he was trying to get Epstein to donate to Bard College. And then Chomsky, he said that um, he that he was meeting with Epstein to discuss political and academic topics. Your reporting says many of the meetings happened at Epstein's Upper East Side townhouse, one of the locations where he's alleged to have sexually abused uh, women and girls. Does this raise any new questions, do you think, about what some of these powerful people might have witnessed while there? I mean, it does make you wonder, but we don't have any reporting to suggest that they witnessed anything beyond what they've told us. Um, or that they participated in anything. Um, But these were meetings that we didn't know about. They'd been hidden for several years. And um, these names had not appeared in the Black Book or in the flight logs. What surprised you the most as you went through these new documents? And and do you know if there is any law enforcement investigation in looking into any of these connections? I think what surprised me the most was just the wide range of people that were associating with him after 2008. I mean, we have the CIA director, we have Goldman's top lawyer, we have Noam Chomsky, we have a longtime college president, a Kissinger consultant, a Rothschild. So it just runs, I mean, it's across different fields, different um, industries. Yeah. In addition uh, to the 2008 conviction, of course, Epstein continued to face public accusations of abuse uh, for years before he was finally charged in 2019 with a sex trafficking conspiracy. Here's how uh, billionaire Bill Gates once justified meeting with Epstein. He had relationships with uh, people he said, you know, would give to Global Health, which is an interest I have. Those meetings were were a mistake. They didn't result in uh, what he purported and I cut them off. What did you do when you found out about his background? Well, and you know, I've said I regretted having those dinners. Uh, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing new on that. All these powerful people um, who wanted to, let's, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt, do good things with Epstein's uh, wealth. Um, but they were prepared to turn a blind eye to some horrific crimes and a conviction. Um, 
What does there need to be accountability uh, for them? It's hard to say. I mean, the Epstein case had generated waves of media coverage around 2006, 2008. Um, so if you did like a Google search, you could have figured out what he was accused of. And um, he was a registered sex offender at this time. And at that time, like one of his big clients, Les Wexner in 2007, he says he cut ties. And then we later find out that JP Morgan cut ties with him in 2013, even though some bankers kept going there for years. So people did have some idea, but it wasn't until the Miami Herald reported the extent of all his behavior. Um, and I don't know if they even reported all of it, but they just really documented a lot of it. And that led to his sex trafficking conspiracy um, arrest in yeah. 2019. Yeah, the great Julie K. Brown uh, down there. Well, you're doing uh, some yeoman's work, some great work yourself, Khadija Saftar. Thank you uh, so much. Still a lot about that whole hideous episode we don't know about and we need to know more. Despite a White House meeting set up for next week, top Senate Democrats are resisting demands from House Republicans to tie any spending cuts to paying off existing debt. Wolf Blitzer is going to get into that and more right next uh, in the Situation Room. Wolf, uh, who do you got tonight? Jake, the second-ranking Senate Democrat, Senator Dick Durbin, joins me live tonight in the Situation Room. We have a lot to discuss. Uh, Durbin is, of course, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he's pushing for new ethics legislation for the Supreme Court justices amid a series of scandals. I'll get his thoughts on the latest developments in the debt ceiling fight as lawmakers scramble to avoid a default before the end of the month. Joining me as well in the coming hour, the Pentagon Press Secretary, Brigadier General Patrick Ryder, will discuss President Biden's plans to send U.S. troops to the southern border with Mexico just ahead of an expected surge in migration. All of that and a lot more coming up right at the top of the hour, right here in the Situation Room. All right, Wolf, we'll be uh, listening now for what Durbin has to say. We'll be watching. Still ahead on the lead, the new development in the Ed Sheeran versus Marvin Gaye trial involving 80 other songs. What's going on? Stay with us. And our pop culture lead, what may be the beginning of lawsuits, depending on how the copyright case plays out, alleging similarities between Marvin Gaye's hit song, Let's Go Get It On, and Ed Sheeran's Thinking Out Loud. First, let's hear the songs. Be loving you till we're 17. Oh, man. <laughs> wow. Uh, I mean, I'm no expert, but okay. Anyway, it turns out Let's Get It On may not have been the first song to use the same musical chord progression. A witness for Ed Sheeran's defense team testified today at least 80 songs used those same chords, and 33 of those songs were created before Marvin Gaye's hit topped the charts in 1973. All right. All right. We'll see how it plays out. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and if you have an invite, Blue Sky at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts, all two hours, just sitting there like an incredible Marvin Gaye record, just waiting for you to enjoy. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I'd like to call The Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.